Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. I have patients who have gotten a diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum as late as 16 years old. I even had a 21-year-old patient ask how she could be evaluated after she read the diagnostic criteria and she self-identified as being on the spectrum. Maybe you've read the recent data from the CDC that showed one in 36 kids have autism. Other statistics put it closer to like one in 54, but whatever the number really is, it's a lot of people. It also leaves everyone wondering why the reported rates change. Is there a biological reason? Are we just identifying more people? Or is it because the definition has changed? Identifying autism, it's not straightforward. And putting a diagnosis on paper, which is what is counted in the statistics, that probably has changed. In part, because the definition of autism has changed over even just the past 30 years. Much of the biology of autism, it's not clearly understood even now. And it's probably not just one disorder. It's an entire spectrum of developmental problems that share a few characteristics. So diagnosing autism, it's complicated and it's evolving. One thing we do know is that behavioral treatments, they can be very effective, especially if they're started at a young age. But currently, the average age of diagnosis is around four. And this is partly because the tests to screen for autism, they depend on parents identifying their child's behavior or on doctors observing a child. And the symptoms, they might be hidden because many of the behaviors that we use that help doctors to diagnose autism, you can't observe them until a child is older. So we're caught in this loop. We need early identification, but we're not able to diagnose early because we don't have the best tools and because of the nature of autism spectrum disorders. And that's where creative, cutting-edge researchers like Dr. Karen Pierce come in. She's the co-director of the Autism Center of Excellence at UC San Diego, and you're not going to believe her ideas about how to diagnose autism as early as 12 months of age. That's coming up. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. The story of autism starts back in 1938, when Dr. Leo Kanner, a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins, started tracking 11 of his young patients who he noticed all had similar behavioral issues. Initially, they were attributed to an early form of schizophrenia, but he questioned that diagnosis. He studied these 11 children together and he described a new syndrome. The kids all had in common that they didn't relate to people and objects in a typical way. He also described that these kids had what he called extreme aloneness. He noticed they didn't have any desire for interaction with anyone, not even their own parents. He also identified that they all had delayed speech or bizarre speech, and they all had an obsessive need for sameness. And that obsession would cause the kids to repeat their actions over and over again. 
He took the term autism, which had been previously used to describe the introspective symptoms that are involved in schizophrenia, and he labeled the children in his clinic as having what he named infantile autism. In 1943, he published his findings in the journal Nervous Child, and his paper titled Autistic Disturbances of Affective Contact is now the most cited publication on autism. From this first description of 11 children with autism back in 1943, it wasn't until almost 40 years later that kids were more consistently diagnosed with autism. I interviewed Dr. Karen Pierce, a professor in the Department of Neurosciences at the University of California, San Diego, and the co-director of the UCSD Autism Center of Excellence. Her work focuses on ways to identify kids who might have an autism spectrum disorder, also referred to as ASD. We doctors call this process screening. That's when we have a quick test that identifies kids that should go on to have more in-depth testing for a condition. It's sort of like our eye chart exam. It's not a great test, but if you don't pass it, you know that you need to see an eye doctor for a more thorough evaluation. I wish that screening for autism was as simple as asking just a few questions in clinic, but it's far more complicated than you might think. The challenge of how doctors diagnose autism, it starts back when autism was first defined by the American Psychological Association in their diagnostic manual that they publish that doctors use to classify their diagnoses. Researcher Dr. Karen Pierce explains the history. Interestingly, it took until 1980 before the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the Bible of what you know psychologists and psychiatrists used to diagnose lots of different disorders, made it in there. If you were a mom and you had a child with autism between 1943 and 1980, you were just flailing with no diagnosis, no direction. It was very hard. It was extremely challenging. Uh, but back then, when I first started, I think the rates were something more like 1 in 500. It was considered more on the rare side. Now, today, it's like 1 in 36. The newest paper is just put out by the Centers for Disease Control that tracks the prevalence of autism. Back then, as, I, as we step back in the 1980s, it was diagnosed based on clinician judgment, using these broad brushstrokes from the DSM. But what really, I think, began to get things going and to, to kind of help push the field of diagnosis forward was in 1990 when Catherine Lord, who is a researcher, decided, hey, you know, we need to standardize how we diagnose. We need to understand these kids better. And so she created what's called the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And it's actually incredibly helpful to use that tool as a way to diagnose autism because what she did is she developed a series of what we call presses, a standardized way that you might interact with a child. And then you sit back and you observe the child's reaction. So for example, like you might point to something and say, Johnny, and check to see if the child will actually follow your point. It's an objective quantitative measure. You, you know, you really can, can get a sense of what the child is doing. And you do the same thing with every child you're trying to diagnose. Unlike if you're just using this manual, you know, your interactions, you might not even have an interaction with the child. You might be just talking with the parent or very limited with the child. So the ADOS was great. But what was interesting is when she first developed it in 1990, it was for children age five and older, which to us is, is funny because like at our center, we specialize in trying to identify children who have autism as young as 12 months because we'd like to get them into treatment as early as possible. And so a tool starting at age five is just interesting that that's how it started. The ADOS was a huge leap forward in diagnosing autism, but that test is part of an evaluation that takes hours to complete. It can't just be done in a pediatrician's office. It takes training to administer it, and it's really time-consuming. So the way the process of looking for autism goes now is that pediatricians screen kids in their office, usually using a questionnaire that the parents fill out. 
something like the MCHAT, if you're familiar with this. They use it to identify a set of kids who might have autism. And then those kids who have some indications that they might have autism, they go on to have a much more in-depth evaluation with something like the ADOS that Dr. Pierce was describing. And these evaluations can cost like $2,000 and they take at least four hours. And often it's more like two days of evaluation. Some studies have shown that among kids who are identified on the most popular screening questionnaire that's used in pediatricians' offices, only one in three kids are ultimately diagnosed with autism. It's not a super accurate screening test since we use a questionnaire that the parents fill out. We're relying on the parents to accurately report their children's behaviors. And of course, we also observe our patients to look for signs of autism, but we don't have a lot of time with kids and often they're kind of fearful and they're not always acting like themselves. All this is to say that currently, screening for and ultimately making a diagnosis of autism is really challenging. And I didn't even mention how long a family might have to wait in order to have the in-depth evaluation done. In my city, the wait list is like a year or a year and a half just to get an appointment. So over the past 40 years, there really still is not a reliable, accurate, and efficient method for identifying kids with autism early. And that's why kids aren't getting diagnosed until they're almost five years old. At this point in the story of screening for autism, it became clear that a new approach was needed. And that's when Dr. Pierce brainstormed an idea so she could diagnose kids with autism at earlier ages, and then she could study these younger kids to find characteristics that they had that could help to more efficiently and accurately screen large groups of kids for autism. And she called the program Get Set Early. Here she explains. I was like, how can we find early biomarkers of autism based on the brain or blood or eye tracking or even clinically if kids are not coming into research studies until like they're three or four? That's not that early. I want earlier than that. And so I was like, you know, I think it would be really great if we could figure out a way where everybody worked together to have kind of a standardized protocol for detecting autism at the youngest age as possible. So I came up with this idea, get set early, where S stands for screen, E stands for evaluate, and T stands for treat. And the idea of the model is that we want to screen, refer for evaluation, and treat as rapidly as possible. So these three things are linked. But in order to do it, as the saying goes, it takes a village. And so I went out and literally personally met with virtually every pediatrician in San Diego and said, hey, I'm Karen, and I really would like for you to screen for autism starting at 12 months. Now, keep in mind, that was really novel back in 2005, 6, and 7 when I started this because the American Academy of Pediatrics had been recommending, maybe it was even 24 months at that time, but maybe only 18 months. So 12 months was novel, despite the fact that it was beyond what the AAP guidelines were pediatricians in San Diego were amazing. And I didn't have a single person say no. Everybody was like, sure, let's do it. And so I gave everybody a parent report tool called the CSVS. The reason I picked that one to use at all these well baby checkups starting at 12 months was because it's a broadband screening tool, meaning that it's not autism specific, right? The MCHAT, which is another parent report screening tool, the modified checklist for autism and toddlers, was designed specifically to like try to find kids with autism. And at the time it was first launched, it was more of an 18-month-old thing. So here I am coming in saying, let's start younger. Let's start at 12 months. Let's use a broadband tool because that just means it's a tool that's not specific to autism. You're going to catch kids with a wide range of delays. And the reason I wanted that is because I intuitively understood from all of my clinical work that some kids with autism... While they may not, they might not, you know, have extreme autism symptoms at 12 months, 
They probably are showing some mild delays in language or social communication or cognition. And so using a broadband tool, I have the best shot of catching as many kids as possible. So we had all these doctors starting to use this tool to screen for autism at Well Baby Checkup starting at 12 months. And if a baby failed that screening tool, if they didn't get enough points, the doctor would refer them to our center. We would do a comprehensive workup, which would include very often a blood sample, a brain imaging scan, eye tracking. And that just set us on our way to discover early biomarkers. As I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of research going into finding genetic markers or substances we can test for in the blood that will diagnose autism, or maybe at least identify someone's at risk for autism. However, autism is so diverse, and it's probably caused by many, many different things. It might be a long time before these kinds of tests, or what scientists call biomarkers, can be used in the real world. However, there is a set of biomarkers that are behavioral. Those are things we can watch a child do that an autistic child does, but a typically developing child doesn't do. And that's where Dr. Pierce's research was heading at this point. Dr. Pierce discovered that kids with autism will choose to look at different things than a child who is not on the spectrum. That's when she had the idea to study what kids are looking at using eye tracking. I was like, you know, we need objective quantitative biological markers, not only to diagnose, but to also what I call prognose, to make a prognosis about maybe the subtype that, of autism that the child has, what maybe treatments might be best for them. So I started thinking about what, what could we use and what could we do that would be scalable, that would be simple for everybody. I don't want to do something so fancy that works here in this great research lab, but the world could never use it. So I started thinking about eye tracking. This was quite a long time ago. I started doing eye tracking research probably in about 2005. Autism researchers have been looking for a biological marker, something that's different about the biology of kids with autism that could be objectively measured. And keep in mind, we're talking about a group of kids who are nonverbal, they don't speak. We're talking about trying to identify autism in kids in the 12 to 18 month age range. And the idea that Dr. Pierce had to use eye tracking as a screening tool, that's the big idea that led to a whole new paradigm in diagnosing autism. She figured out how to record what kids are looking at and what they look at when given a choice between different options might just be the biomarker we've been looking for. And how she's doing that is coming up next. Symptoms of Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD for short, can be extremely different among kids on the spectrum. But there are a few universal traits that have been discovered through observations of these kids. And any trait or behavior that can be objectively tested for, we call that a biomarker. As Dr. Pierce observed patients with autism over her many years treating kids, and then later when she was screening them at very young ages, she realized they turn their eye and look at objects and scenes that typically developing kids don't. So she started to think about how she could use this trait to create a test for autism. What kind of an eye tracking test could I develop that actually, rather than focusing on the deficits that you find in autism, but on their strengths, like something that they're actually superior at or really interested in. So I developed what's called the geometric preference test for autism. It's literally just a one minute video where a child will watch some images of kids, you know, moving around and jumping around. And then the other side of the screen, so there's, there's two movies playing simultaneously, it shows geometric shapes 
moving around sort of at the same cycle level as the kids are jumping around and typically developing kids and kids who have non-ASD delays, like just a language delay or a global developmental delay will really uh, spend almost all of their time or a lot of their time looking at the other little kids jumping around. But some kids with autism say, hey, I really love these repetitive geometric shapes. They're fascinating to me. And they will spend a lot of their time looking at that side of the video. And we basically just determine the total amount of looking time on one side of the video versus other. And voila, you have a very high, highly accurate diagnostic test for autism as it relates to just a certain subtype. It turns out that, you know, for anybody who knows individuals with autism, everybody's completely different. There's a lot of heterogeneity. And some kids with autism completely pass the test. So if you fail, the probability that you do have autism is super high. But if you pass, it doesn't mean that you don't have autism, if that makes sense. So I kind of started out with that. And then I realized, okay, I'm so excited. This is a great you know, biomarker test, but it's only going to capture like 20%, one out of five kids. I want more. So I started playing around with eye tracking, developed a, a trial and error, just a huge battery of different tests. Right now I'm working with a battery of around six different tests and they're all uh, they, they have some conceptual overlap, but some of them are different. Like some of them will tap into the auditory domain. So rather than what is the child looking at, I use gaze contingent eye tracking technology, wherein a child looks at a particular point on a screen and a sound file will play. So if you look over here, you'll hear horns blaring or traffic. If you look over here, you hear a mom talking and check to see what do they like to listen to as another type of eye tracking test. Another one of my eye tracking tests kind of checks, you know, if people are pointing and doing joint attention types of behaviors, um, are, is the child sort of following the actress's face and her point and going back and forth and switching her attention? And so with a bunch of, you know, fancy mathematical algorithms, we basically combine a child's performance across all these six tests to determine autism risk. And right now, you know, depending on if the child can sit through all six tests, which is around 10 minutes in length, we can now capture around 80% of children on the spectrum with around 95% accuracy. So Super excited. That's actually brand new. I haven't published that work yet. We're working on that right now. Hopefully we'll get the paper submitted in a couple of months. You may see this research hit the news. This technique is only being done on a research basis, but it may not be that long before you see this done in your pediatrician's office. The way the test works is that a child goes to their pediatrician's office for their well visit. As young as 12 months old, they sit in their parents' lap and they face a video monitor and several different videos will be shown while the machine tracks where the child is looking. What's really cool about this is, a child who can't talk, they can still give us information. Yeah, it is, it is pretty amazing to be able to kind of get a glimpse into a child's mind. If you have got some kids, you know, they're not talking at all, and you could ask them, hey, what, do you, what are you interested in? They may not be able to tell you. You can sit down in front of an eye tracker, say, hey, what are you interested in? And then they get to tell you uh, without words. And so it's really, it's really interesting. Understanding how a child's mind works and what they're drawn to, that helps researchers design their experiments. And one great example of this in practice is knowing about how kids respond to baby talk. That's the language of parents or mothers, which is often also referred to as mother ease. And that is one component of the eye tracking tests. So motherese is sort of, a, it's a sing-songy way that new mothers will talk to their babies. So it's, it's a speech style that has higher pitch, intonation, exaggerated emotional prosody, and it's a tool and a trick that parents use instinctively, nobody tells them to do it, to engage their baby's attention, right? Because babies 
need to learn from their parents. And one way that we get their attention is by speaking of mother ease. It's like, no, sweetie, I love you. You're so pretty, right? Whatever. Your inflection goes up and down more. There's greater prosody. And if I actually had a real baby in front of me, that would have been a lot better. But, you know, you just biologically, it just comes out of you. And babies will learn language that way. You know, there are studies that show that the relationship between exposure of uh, quantity of exposure to mother ease speech and later, later language outcomes there's a positive relationship. So it really is a way that parents uh, use this to bootstrap language and social behavior for their kids. Parents actually even speak in mother ease to their baby when they're still in the womb. Sometimes people even do it to their animals. You know, like people do this as, as an endearing way to interact, but it also facilitates uh, language and social behavior. So how are you using that in terms of autism research? Yeah, we're using mother ease because I think I had mentioned that when I first started out doing eye tracking, I was really interested in social visual attention. What are kids with autism interested in looking at? And as an experimentalist, I decided I didn't want the confound of sound. And so all of those initial eye tracking videos were just images, kids running and jumping and playing or these mathematical things. And I didn't have any sound deliberately. And then I started realizing, you know what? I, there are some kids with autism maybe that actually do pay really good social attention. But once people start talking, that's when they turn off because it becomes too complicated or they're not interested for whatever reason. So I was thinking, how can I use eye tracking to understand auditory processing? When, you know, the, the basic eye tracking technology is like, oh, what is the child looking at? But it, but we, we like to use a preferential looking paradigm so we can get at a child's choice. And if you had two movies playing that both had sound going on, that, that's not going to work. It's going to be a mess. So I started thinking about it and realized that you can use what's called gaze contingent eye tracking technology which is you can have two movies play side by side, but the child controls the experiment and wherever they look will trigger whatever sound file is happening. And because I understood of the power of mother ease to engage attention, I was like, oh, well, I can just have one movie that has mother ease speech, like an actor speaking of mother ease. And then the other side of the movie would have, it's not going to have any mothers. It's going to have like traffic or shooting stars or things, you know, that are not mother ease like, and a child can choose to look at one or the other and trigger the sound file that happens. And that's what we did. And so I selected Mother Ease deliberately because while I could have just had one side of the video being somebody just talking, right? I wanted it to be really compelling. So I knew that Mother Ease speech was a really compelling auditory kind of stimulus for children of this age. And so we decided to use that and it worked. So it just like the GeoPref test and kind of the visual eye tracking tests, these auditory tests actually were really powerful as well. So as Dr. Pierce explained, patients watch a video and the screen is split down the middle. The computer tracks where the child is looking while both videos play at the same time. I've seen a few of these tests and it's really, really cool. What she showed me is that typically developing kids, they tend to watch the mom who's talking, then they'll glance at the traffic and then they'll find that less interesting. And so they'll look back and watch the mother who might be telling a story or talking in mother ease. And when they look at the screen, it turns on the sound. And you can see where they're looking when you play back the videos because the computer records a dot on the screen where they were looking. This is compared to kids on the spectrum. They'll look at the mother, look at the traffic, which turns on the traffic noise. Then they'll glance back at the mom and then they'll just turn back to the video of traffic and continue to watch that there's really quite a difference. That's how where a child looks on the screen can predict the probability that a child has autism. And Dr. Pierce has developed a sequence of these videos that may predict autism in a child. Her upcoming research is gonna test out how accurately the videos are able to diagnose autism at different ages. 
This research is really just so exciting for the future of identifying kids early who have autism. And I think most parents who are keeping an eye on autism research are looking at blood tests or brain imaging. But what Dr. Karen Pierce is doing, it has the potential to be more available. And because of the huge variety in types of autism, I think we're going to find that those other types of biologic tests, they're not going to identify as many kids with autism. They may be more specific for a single type of autism though. And the hope is that something like these eye tracking tests, they'll be a quick way to screen kids for autism, but they also might someday help us tailor our treatments to an individual child's type of autism. There's a lot of work left to be done here, but here's the hope. And then also we're going to try to start understanding how we can map a child's eye gaze profiles onto maybe recommendations for what treatments might accelerate the pace of their progress the best. Basically, you have some children, as I had mentioned, who actually do quite well, even on the six-test battery. And so I think that for those children, because they do have a lot of social attention interest and their attention patterns are where they should be, And so if eye tracking tells us that you've got some kids that really are good at social attention, then I think that maybe the optimal treatment for them, for example, could be much more academic in nature, getting their skill sets up to where they need to be, rather than, you know, most autism treatments are extremely socially based. That's always important to have, especially if you have a diagnosis of autism, you must by definition have some social challenges, but the balance might be different for you because you are probably getting a decent amount of neural stimulation from the environment. You just need to maybe be bootstrapped up to levels of cognition and language that are match your peers versus the kids. If we find some kids with eye tracking that just are not looking at social images or not paying attention auditorily to social images, eye tracking is telling us across every single test, they are completely socially, uh, their social attention is not where it needs to be. Then we might want to have a really intensified social attention program for them. The future of treatment for autism and the outcomes for kids on the spectrum, it's going to be very different than today because we're likely going to be able to diagnose a lot earlier and we may be able to refine more specific diagnoses. Currently, we really don't differentiate between types of autism very well. The hope is that in the near future, we can identify a child early and figure out more precisely which supports and types of therapy an individual child needs to be successful throughout their life. If you want to hear more about autism, go back and listen to episode eight. It's called, Is It Autism? Be sure to click the follow button so you don't miss a show. I want to thank Dr. Pierce for her more than 25 years of research that has led us to this point. I can't wait to see what she finds in the next chapter of her investigations. To learn more, visit the UCSD Autism Center of Excellence on the web. from the pediatrician next door find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com if you've got a question about the weird things kids do send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show i'm dr wendy hunter and i'm the pediatrician next door this show is produced by red rock music make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening i'll be back next time with more